0: Utopian.io. I'll go look for it. Yep.
1: Yeah. Okay. And they basically okay, take open source projects, okay, and they induct them into the Steam, Steamit blockchain or Steam blockchain, uh, and build up a community around them. And um, people who uh, contribute actively contribute back to the project can get rewards back in cryptocurrency. So it doesn't have to be code necessarily. It could be things like, you know, translations or, or manuals or graphics or anything else. Um, and it builds this idea around the open source project, actually making money direct from people who are contributing to it. It's a very interesting point. And, and your uh, comparison there would be something maybe for content creators too. Well, no, I mean, the point is that, that Steam has also has, uh, also has uh, DTube. Okay, mm. which is district, yep. decentralized yep. tube mm-hmm. and D live. And they basically work in the same way. So uh, you put content on D tube and you're earning money in, you no know, uh, cryptocurrency care by people upvoting your videos. Um, so the bottom line is care, right? The, the popular ones get upvoted and you earn money from being popular. So you put out good content, you make money.
0: Hmm. Hmm. That also could, I how does that not turn into clickbait 2.0 though? Yeah.
1: Ooh. This is the cool thing about it. Okay, so so the whole idea about um, upvoting people for good content is that, um, you know, it's, it's community managed about the weighting of the content. So you have to have so many people like your of sufficient uh, steam power to be able to upvote your content to say it's, it's legitimate content. So you earn steam power by being a good person in the community. Hmm. Hmm. The more steam power you have, the huh. more your vote counts.
0: Interesting. Ha ha that's particularly interesting, Mm. that's a really interesting take on that.
2: The problem with DTube is it just sucks at delivering video, that's (laughs) the problem. (laughs) I get to see a single video actually play.
0: This is Linux Unplugged, episode 245. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's running the numbers, looking at the distros, and watching all of the projects... My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Mr. Payne. It's good to be with you again on episode 245. Coming up uh, in this week's episode, we're going to do all of our traditional community news, as well as some new project releases, some app picks, and some development sprints. But then, towards the end of the show, we're going to talk about Microsoft's new Linux-powered devices that will be coming to the market soon. It's all of the news this week, and it's part of Azure Sphere which is an overall, large, three-stage, three-component effort that Microsoft's putting on that may just wind up dominating IoT. And we'll tell you how Linux is playing a role, what component of this is Linux-based, and what you can expect in the pretty near future. Wes and I got on a phone call with one of the core creators and developers from Microsoft, they took the time to get the team on the phone with us before the show, and we asked them all of the hard questions. We got the specifics about what they're running on these devices, and we'll share what we learned with you later on in the show, straight from the horse's mouth. We couldn't have gotten better people to describe the tech to us. So it was really pretty awesome. But before we get all of that, there's like news, community stuff, and a mumble room to bring in. So let's do all of that right now. Time appropriate greetings, virtual luck. Two that's of a packet no, okay. Wow. That's, that that kind of made me hungry, actually. I'm, now I have a bit of an appetite. Well, guys, we have much to cover today, and uh, I don't really know where to start other than maybe with Linus. That just seems like the appropriate place right now. Uh, Linus Torvalds on the Linux kernel mailing list announced plans that you should not be excited about and mean absolutely nothing. So would you please stop talking about it? Except for Linus keeps talking about it. Uh, So he says uh, the next release uh, doesn't really seem to be shaping up to be any particularly big release. And there is nothing particularly special about it either. The most special thing that happened is just sort of a numerology thing. The Linux kernel has passed the 6 million git object mark. And this, he says, is reason enough to call the next kernel version 5.0. This version is completely meaningless It should mean uh, that it's just silly and that maybe I won't even switch to it because even numerological rules would be a silly reason. So I may not do it and I may just surprise you, Uh, but 5.0 will happen someday and it will be and should be meaningless. You have been warned. I like it. I can't wait. Yeah, right? (laughs) I can't wait for I have no reason to be excited. I am really looking forward to Linux kernel 5.0 for no reason at all. (laughs) I thought okay, all right. Thank you, Linus. Thank you. So that's how we start the show out today. But let's talk about something that's a little bit higher up in the kernel stack, and that's the user interface. And uh, Mister Martin Wimpress tooling away like a soldier at Ubuntu Mate's high DPI support. And it was almost a year ago that uh, Wimpy came on here and and told us about the first steps of bringing high DPI support to Ubuntu Mate. In fact, I'm looking at the post right here from April 2017. Uh, where it's a screenshot that Wimpy took on his XPS 15 4K screen and with a few dirty hacks with Ubuntu 17.04 as a base we had a high DPI so fast forward now about a year where are we at with all of this Wimpy?
3: We're all done (gasps) it's all high DPI to the max in all the right places so I think I last spoke to you about this maybe five or six weeks ago and I said I wouldn't talk about it again but I'm lying because I'm (laughs) going to talk to you about it now so, what's changed since then is um, we had a few bits that weren't implemented. So, one of the big changes is now that um, Marco, which is the uh, window manager for the Marte desktop, that now all of its uh, window controls and everything, all of those scale and work correctly. So, where before, when high DPI was enabled, we were standing up compis underneath in order to fill that gap, we, we don't need to do that anymore. Wow. So, the behavior is just like what you used to have. You can either choose to run Marco or comp is, uh, and that is, it's not constrained by whether you're using high DPI or not. So that's one of the big changes, and then, um uh kaja the file manager has now had the full high dpi treatment ah. uh, and in terms of user facing changes that are going to be obvious there um that's really sort of um we've made sure that the icons are all um using um vector icons and what have you so it all looks a bit crisper very good and nicer so uh yeah and there's been a, a few tweaks and touches all the way through to just improve things so there's um some improvements to the way that font DPI scaling works. So um, it gives you the ability to sort of do pseudo uh, fractional scaling by having a scaled desktop and then manipulating the font DPI. So, yeah, it's all it's all looking really good now. And all those patches have landed in 1804 as of about a week ago, uh, all being tested, looking in good shape. So our high DPI journey is finished. And interestingly, you said it was a year ago, we 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 had that first discussion about his uh rather shonky setup but the actual journey started a year before that just after 1604 closed uh, um we embarked on our journey towards um GTK3 so this has been 2 years in the making
0: wow yeah good point um and congratulations let me start there let me just say congratulations and then also uh work well done really nice to see this yeah. we were just you know just talking on the pre-show about how there's just a few systems right now i uh i i can't really decide like if my next rig is going to be high dpi and so i'm i'm really happy to see this getting pushed forward by more and more desktops
3: yeah i think the state of high dpi in general is in a good place for linux now as well yeah yeah i can remember some i think when you got your xps Mm -hmm. i think that was the the third gen so that was about two and a half three years ago i think you got that laptop Correct. And, you know, you were saying, well, you know, these applications don't scale. And I think Firefox and Chrome both didn't scale at that time. (laughs) You know, these days, um, and it's not just, you know, it's nice, nice, obviously, that the desktop that I am involved in now has high DPI scaling. But when I install lots of other applications, I see just about everything scaling. Now, you know, the one obvious standout that doesn't scale is um, GIMP um which is you know disappointing and they're getting there they've got some some cheeky workarounds in uh, gimp 210 which is still based on gtk2 but they they do some magic to use yeah. larger icons and bump up the font scaling to sort of fill the gap in the meantime yeah but other than that there isn't a whole lot that i run and think oh this doesn't this this isn't uh, high DPI scaled.
0: It has gotten better. It's, it could be the, the story could be a bit better still on the plasma side of things. There's still three or so places you have to go to really get it all working, um, but cheese bacon asks an interesting question, and I don't know if you have the rough idea, but just from like a raw number standpoint, uh, do you have any idea of roughly how many assets had to be touched to get to a high DPI version or had to be replaced, like icons and things like that?
3: Oh, crikey, thousands. Yeah. Thousands. Uh, Every every icon, um, those were were retouched by Daniel Foray. He did an icon rework for us in 1704, uh michael tunnell did all of the the small assets to provide scaled versions and recolored them so that's everything from like the 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 check boxes and the 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 outlines around the buttons because all the buttons are styled and themes so uh, and then all of the css at the back end for the gtk3 stuff whole chunks of that had to be adapted so it knew what how to apply styling when it was in a scaled mode Mm. so you know when i say it took two years to get there just building on top of gtk3 is only one of those steps and you know reworking all of the themes to understand how all of these assets scale and are provided you know that was a whole chunk of work and there were numerous themers and digital artists involved in in that endeavor so yeah, thousands and thousands of assets have been touched along the way.
0: Wow. Well, I'm glad you guys are doing the hard work there. Uh, so that'll be all all good to go in 1804. So when I get the final 1804, I, I, I'll have that. Yeah, I think i think there's
3: one teeny tiny thing we're going to fix post-release regarding high dpi but it's so insignificant i'm not going to mention it and nobody will notice it
0: <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. okay then don't pay any attention over here <laughs> well thanks for the update yeah it's misdirection yeah <laughs> yeah we're, we're good you know while we're on the uh, ubuntu vein here eric i know i saw news uh, about a week ago i think about the ubuntu studio project uh, rebasing or making big changes can you fill us in on that
4: Yes, so we've got some uh, great things going on. First of all, we established a council so that uh, we can take some load off of the project later, which is really a good thing but what we're doing is we are trying to do something such as uh replace our uh meta package installer with something like the ubuntu mate welcome which i guess has also been forked to budgie cool and so we're going to be including that give it let to let people tailor the experience the way they want and we're also considering perhaps a change of default desktop environment and perhaps add additional desktop environments as options. So there's a number of things we're kind of brainstorming and working on. We definitely want to get Ubuntu Studio out of the stagnation it's been in for about the past 2 years.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing how that goes cuz I've I've used it on and off. It's a pretty solid distro for people that are, you know, maybe want to get into podcasting as an example or something like that. It's pretty great. So Ubuntu Studio will have some cha- when do those start landing? So it sounds like the council stuff is already in place but other changes, is that a release or two away?
4: We're aiming for uh, 18.10 for the first of the big changes, um, but 18.04 is really just going to be iterative, and the only thing about 18.04 is for us, it will not be an LTS just due to lone manpower.
0: Mm, okay. Yeah, I think I remembered hearing that. Well, great. Thank you, guys, for the updates, and uh, definitely keep up the good work and keep us posting on how that goes. I love watching them projects, and uh, it's always cool to see, see that kind of stuff. It's just so cool. It's so darn great. So darn great. You know what else is great? Ting. .ting Linux.ting.com. It's smarter than unlimited because if you use less, you pay less. It's just a base $6 for your line and then your usage on top of that for your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. That's it. So if you only get a dozen text messages a month, you don't need to pay for 500 text messages. If you can download podcasts and listen to music via Wi-Fi and cache it locally, you probably don't need 12, 15 gigs of data. So just pay for what you use. And if you want multiple devices, like a MiFi or a cell phone, or if you want a backup phone, it's great for that. Because at $6 a month, you can afford to be really, really flexible. And they combine that with a great control panel, fantastic customer service, and ton of devices that are ready to go. And maybe the most important thing about Ting that I don't talk a lot about, because it's just obvious to me now, is they don't have like a a strategy, to get into media. They they don't have a streaming service, they don't have a ting app store, they don't have an experience a branded experience with partners that they want to push down to my phone. They don't do any of that. They don't care how you use the service, they just want you to have service and you can pick from CDMA or GSM and they won't have a, they don't have like some sort of ting rom that you'll have to install. So they don't get in the way of updates if you got a phone that gets frequent updates like the Pixels and the Nexi and the Motos. They don't get in the way of that. You get the updates as soon as the vendor releases them. That's by far one of my favorite things about Ting and embarrassingly uncommon in the U.S. when you buy devices from carriers. But there's so many other great things about Ting. The customer service, like I mentioned, is bar none. The control panel, always the best, and much, much more. Start by going to linux.ting.com. Take $25 off a device, or if you bring a compatible device... $25 $25 in service credit. Linux.ting.com. Big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the Unplugged program. Linux.ting.com.
4: <clears throat>
0: <clears throat> Wes, you found this cool, cool terminal app that for once isn't powered by Node.js, but is still super cool. It's written in Go, actually. <laughs> and how would you ever know it's named GoTop? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Got to make sure you know. And it's another terminal-based graphic activity monitor. And it's so epic. First of all, because it's in Go, it's really simple. It's a small little thing, no big deal. And it um it has a colored N curses graph and it has boxes of memory usage and your process list and it boxes everything out into individual segments. It's the exact kind of thing if your boss is walking in and you want to have something great up on your screen, and you could just have this up in an SSH terminal, you know, and you just tab over to that when your boss walks in. Oh yeah, I'm just pulling down some metrics off the old server. You know, meanwhile, you're watching YouTube on the, on another tab. Yeah, right, <laughs> probably also in a terminal, but yeah. in the other t Bucks pane. Yeah, actually, you did have a pick for a um, bare minimal uh, YouTube this week, too, that almost made it in the show, which could go nice with this. Minimal YouTube, I don't... Do, do, do you want to check? Check the check your link, see if you have it, because we should almost bust that out. It has a it has a light and dark mode, and the installation is just dead simple. You just get, clone it down, you run the shell script, you've got it to go, and, of course, it's in the AUR, too, is dash uh, bin uh, Where was it? Oh yeah, yeah. So it's minimalist YouTube, and if you go to uh, tube.quinzel.tech, it's q i q u. I put a link in the thing. Put a link in the IRC. We'll for that put, yeah, we'll, we'll put a link in. That is that. It's like uh, the Google search page for YouTube. It's just nothing. It's just blank. It's minimal. So it's simple easy. And clean. Yeah. And it get just gets you the video. Uh, it's a great way to use YouTube if you just want to go watch a video, but you don't want all of the rest of YouTube. Uh, so yeah. Uh, Wes will drop a link skis in the IRC.geekshed.net. Anyway, so this is called Gotop, and uh, Gotop is a super slick-looking terminal that we wanted to uh, point you guys to so you have an app to download this week after the show. And then uh, a call-out to a project that used to make it or break my day. It's Clonezilla, and Clonezilla got a good update this week, version 255.38, and the most interesting feature is a new massive deployment mechanism based on BitTorrent technology. So the machines that you're imaging become part of the distribution network. Well, that is just slick. It's obvious, too, really, if you think about it. Uh, Now, it does require some additional disk space uh, to do this, Um, but uh, I've worked on some large networks where you're imaging 30, 40, 50 systems or more, and this could be so useful. It's such a neat, neat thing. They're also baking in um, some part image support, some additional part image support, and uh, the ability to change Windows 10 host names when you restore an image. Ooh, slick. Make Clonezilla. Yeah.
5: Make Clonezilla. They just, they just keep on going,
0: and it works so well. So appreciative. It's not something I use frequently, but I am so appreciative. Every time you need that, to, right? Mm-hmm, it's just
5: mm-hmm, boom.
0: hmm And there, there's a live CD that has now uh, been synced up to uh, Debian Sid and uh, running Linux kernel 4.15. So it's a pretty modern, pretty recent live environment to run Clonezilla from, and then they're baking in that BitTorrent distribution. I got to play with that sometime. I don't have any need for that, but I got to play with that. It just sounds so cool. And then to round out uh, a a, a sort of an app pick-ish section, um, Font Finder is a GTK3 application. Yes, I'm still talking about GTK applications. Um, That uh, is a really easy, smooth front end to browse Google's free font archive from the comfort of your Linux desktop. And it's super straightforward. It's exactly what you'd expect. But at the same time, it's pretty nice. You can search for the font you want. So say you want to go get Google's Robo font, or Roboto, I think it is. So you put in Robo, and then it'll, it'll show you Roboto, condensed, mono, slab, all the different fonts they have. And then in the client-side decoration header bar thingy, it has a nice install button. You It'll pull that font down from Googs and load it into your Linux box. Bob's your uncle. Robert's your father. Now you've got a font. I like it. Simple, easy, and we'll have a link in the show notes for that because it's up on, on GitHub. So that's Fault Finder. I did
5: notice there, Chris, it was... Uh, did you pick it because it was Rust? Is that why you're your little
0: favorite? It actually did. That was legitimately what pushed it over. <laughs> you know me so well. That was like, that was totally it, too. I was going to make a Rust joke about it, but then I just got to let it go. But yeah, you caught me. You caught me. Uh, Sari was going to join us from System76, but Mumble is... Um, Mumble is off-putting if you don't use it on an ongoing basis, so I think they had some audio troubles. I might try to try to grab him later on in the week and just have an offline chat with him about it. But System76 is joining the GNOME Foundation Advisory Board, and I believe it's actually three from System76 that'll be doing this. Uh, and I find this to be a fascinating move because it's while the advisory board isn't super influential over what GNOME does, because at the end of the day, some developer. Has to do the work, and it's not like they have a lever they pull on, and then a developer comes out the other side. So it's it's it can definitely set directions and things like that. But it could also, my understanding, and I was going to ask you about this, is it can be sort of a sounding board for organizations that are using GNOME or groups that are using GNOME for different projects. That seems like a super sweet position for System 76 to be in. Like it makes sense, right? Yeah, think, yeah. yeah, to be able to get to, to, to sort of a wider industry data collection of how people are using GNOME. When they're building Pop! OS on top of GNOME, it seems really, yeah. You're part of the conversation in the community. Yeah. So, uh, good for them. System 76 joining the GNOME advisory board. Boom. How about that as a rapid-fire set of app picks and news? That's what we do here on the Unplugged program. We busted through that quicker than I expected, even with a bonus app pick. right to the brain. Man, man. If we could just hook it up to your eyeballs, it would be even better. Just suck it right in through the uh, neurons in your eyes. Coming next week. (laughs) Yeah, we're working on that, aren't we? In fact, maybe I'll mention a couple of things. So uh, there is a new mysterious operator behind the scenes. I can't say more than that, but uh, I don't know if you guys remember, but many, many weeks ago, I announced around episode 250, we'd be making some changes to the Unplugged program. Uh, yes, I you did. I think I might have mentioned it around 200. I don't know. Well, they arrived a little early. And so we've we been we've, for about a month and a half, we've been every week, there has been small incremental Changes for the better behind the scenes. Uh, The the poor folks on YouTube have it the worst, um, but the folks on the podcast version have it the best. So it's been a mixed bag, although we are adding new features to our YouTube video. We're trying a new experimental encoding that will post the video on YouTube and in the show description section include time links for the different chapters of the show. Slick. Yeah, that's something we're working on for a bit. So we've been making changes for a few weeks on the Linux Unplugged program. And... um, the core of it is if you haven't updated your RSS feeds, it'd be a good time. Go to linuxunplugged.com and slash RSS is the feed directly. linuxunplugged.com slash RSS. Subscribe to that new feed. Let us know what you think and start sending your feedback about it at uh, the slash contact. So you can go to linuxunplugged.com slash contact and let us know what you think. Because it's been a, it's been a slow iterative change and we're going through another change. So we're, we'll have, we've hired someone to do the editing for a bit to see and see how that works and uh, see what you guys think. So I have been editing the show for the last few weeks. Uh, I'll be pulling back a bit. I'll still be involved with all that stuff. But uh, more changes are coming, but they're starting now. We're sort of at the end of it all. So it's a good time to kind of take stock and see what everybody thinks. And if you're on the YouTube side of things, just be patient with us as we sort of retool some of that workflow because that stuff is a changing.
5: But it's exciting times in the unplugged universe. Times would be
0: a changing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and also, speaking of times changing, Tech Talk Today is back on the air uh, twice a week, technology Ooh. show, Tech techtalk.today. Yeah, yeah. With me and Ange predominantly, but uh, we're going to have folks in town for Linux Fest Northwest, so I'll probably try to get folks to jump on the mic and uh, hang out with us. And Special we'll do, guest stars. Yeah. I bet that Noah Chalaya and I bet I could talk that Noah Chalaya and that Alan Jude. There you go. Getting on the mic from oh. time to time. And then, of course, we'll do a live, uh, we may do a live Linux Unplugged from Linux Fest. I don't know. I think we're also going to try to do a tech talk. So we've got a lot we're doing, but, uh, you can just stay subscribed to get the best stuff there at linuxunplugged.com slash RSS to get the feed directly. All right. So let's move into a couple of final news items for the day. And, uh, let's also then get into the huge item of the day. The, the one that uh, I think people are still processing and is that is that Microsoft is now shipping a Linux product based on the Linux kernel. Which I think has caught a lot of people by surprise yeah. this week. So we'll talk about that as well. But first we'll mention DigitalOcean. Here's the, hold on, Wes, let me pull out the prop paper. You ready?
5: we gotta be prepared for this this is
0: serious business do.co slash unplugged that's where you go to get a $100 credit do.co slash unplugged go there sign up with a new account and get a $100 credit for 60 days you can try out their new mix and match droplet their flexible droplet for $15 a month you choose how much CPU and disk and memory you need you mix and match the different resources they also have CPU optimized droplets with massive high end greatly just, just huge seons just massively powerful and then, if you want to, you can you know, just throw in a few hundred gigs of RAM. Just throw in a few hundred gigs of RAM too. I don't know what I don't know what you're doing, <laughs> but but damn, it's amazing. I mean, they have a whole scale. Uh, but for me, for for my humble needs, I have I have my favorite sweet spot at three cents an hour. Oh, mm. mm. fact, the rigs that I don't have at three cents an hour. Uh, they got upgrades recently from DigitalOcean, and now it's like they're more than I was like I already have them as like at five dollars a month total, like that's plenty because they're just doing like metric collection or they're like alerts or or uh, it's one's a bot and it's like it doesn't need a lot, but DigitalOcean recently adjust all their prices and rec- retroactively just. Upgraded my machine. So my machines just got better recently. <laughs> so not You can do anything. They're just <laughs> no, better. I love it. do.co slash unplugged. You can deploy a system in less than 55 seconds. Everything is using SSDs. They have 12 data centers all over the world. 20 gigabit connections, 40 gigabit connections. I don't know. It's gigabits. I mean, they're just gigabits for days. Plus private networking on the back end. Block storage. They have available as well as S3 compliant spaces. Storage. Very, very nice. Slick. Network level firewalls monitoring baked in to give you metrics on your CPU your disk and graph it all for you it's it's a really 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 compelling offer and you can get a hundred dollars of credit to play around when you go to do.co slash. Unplugged Well, my favorite Linux video editor is having a development sprint as we're on the air, I think, or it's at least in the next few days, if not that. Uh, their team is going to Paris, and they're going to dedicate the time to discuss long-term goals, review application workflow with professional editors, and prepare for the next major release, which is labeled 1808. So the Kadian Live team's going there. And then after that, after there, they're going to the Libre, or at least a subpart of the team is going to Libre graphics meeting for a Kadian Live workshop on the 30th. So if you're going to be in Paris, you can come say hi to the team. If you're going to the Libre graphics meeting, you can go say hi to some of the Kadian Live team. That's fantastic. So a couple of weeks ago, I'm like, uh, who is using Cadian Live? Is anybody else using Cadian Live in production? And I said that, uh, that uh, crazy cast over at Linux Gamecast and Van Stone was editing an open shot. I have been corrected. They are actually using KDN Live. Nice. So, Yeah, another one of the books. I'm trying to keep track. So if you know anybody out there, a YouTuber or uh, actually somebody who's maybe not on YouTube too, just somebody that's just making content in some other capacity, I'd love to know who is using KDN Live out me. there. Because I've been tracking them. Who's, who's me? Who said that? Popey. Oh, Poppy. Oh, what are you using? Popey. It's a Ubuntu podcast video, and I didn't even know it. (laughs) Uh, Well,
2: it is, but we don't use Kaden. I used it just briefly today because um, I wanted to record a video, and I needed to... Redact some personally identifiable information, and I didn't know how to do it. And it turns out that I just Googled "blur credit card info" or something like that, and I found a tutorial. And within like under a minute, I figured it out and added an effect, drew a box around a thing that I wanted to pixelate, and it just did it, rendered it out, done. It was so easy. Caden Live is just awesome. Really? Did wow. It, so,
0: what about yep. like what about like the fact that it was like you know videos moving, right? So like the object kind of moves around in the frame. No, it was um, a web page. With
2: credit card info oh, Okay. In it. but it did it did show how you could move it. But I, huh. I didn't I didn't need to do that, so I didn't I didn't follow the rest of the tutorial. I just got <laughs> as far as oh, that's what I need to do. That's enough. Shut the video <laughs> down. I was yeah, it was great.
0: Yeah, I, I've I've played with it lightly and uh, I like it quite a bit. And um, I'm I know that when you're when you're working with really long projects, that's sometimes that's why I was asking him, like, what is the Linux GameCast using these days? Because when you're working with really long projects. Uh, it, it, a program can get a lot, lot more crashy. It's, it just totally makes a big difference. Have you ever watched
2: him? Uh, he sometimes live streams him editing his own shows. Um, I think on a Sunday afternoon he does it my time yeah. and I've, I've watched him on Twitch sometime and he's just like chatting to people and saying, does this music fit here? What should I do here? <sighs> and you could just see him going over and over yeah. and over the edit. And I don't, th- I think I've seen him, live crash once for him oh. on a live stream. Oh. Um, But yeah, it seems to work for him.
0: Huh. No, I haven't seen it. I'm always, I am that's usually probably when I'm recording LAN, so I I don't really have a chance, but yeah, I've been experimenting on a couple of behind the scenes projects just for like, when we go to Linux Fest, if we have a camera with us, how do I want to edit the resulting footage? Because if I don't figure this out now, it's going to end up on a Mac. You know, that's what my thought process has been. And I've also been experimenting with Reaper, which is an audio editor. Oh yeah. On the other end of things on Linux, uh... I think the situation with Apple and the Mac Pro is a is the canary in the coal mine for Apple, that they have no idea how to build high-end computers. They have no idea. The, the people that are making those computers have obviously lost touch. They don't understand thermal throttling. They don't understand all of these things, and it's just – I think it's too late. And even if they ship something decent in 2019 by hiring a team of highly paid professionals to tell them, yes, you're doing everything right, Johnny – uh, I think it's too late. So it's, it's, it's just not a professional workstation anymore unless your workload is doable on laptops or laptop-like components or systems that are cooled like laptops. So I think it's behoovent upon all of us, if that, if that's a word <laughs> I can make up, to, uh, try to replicate our workflow or replace parts of our workflow as much as possible on Linux. The only, the only problem is KDN Live's getting better for simple edits for me, but Reaper is commercial software. And so it's like, am I really any better off? Because I'm just moving to another commercial solution, but it needs to be sophisticated, it needs to have certain support for industry plugins, it needs to support multi-track. Right. Yep. You know, I've got a mixer with ungodly amounts of inputs and outputs, and my recorder needs to be able to read all of those and bring us all in on our own track. And it's not it's stuff that just audacity can't even do, it's not even capable of doing. So you have to have a certain level of software to do this. It's a start, I think. It tends to be commercial. Yeah, yeah, at least it's on Linux, though. Yeah, Noah's trying to convince me. I'm not so convinced yet. So I'll be curious to see what comes out of the KDN Live sprint. When these things happen, it seems to be pretty good for these projects. Like, the results that we get out of it seem to be pretty, pretty positive. You know, positive. I don't think I've given it a shot yet, so uh, now I have a new, new something to play with. You ought to do, like, a day in Seattle with Wes. Yeah, totally. And then uh, edit, edit it on KDN Live. I think I will. I would so watch that. Yeah. You could be a vlogger, Wes. You could, I, I would watch Get the West the vlog, vlog downtown Seattle, of uh, West vlog. Is there any Seattle vloggers? You could narrow, you could, <laughs> you could just own the market and become the next YouTube star, which sounds wonderful. Yeah. Uh, great. Mm. Yeah. I've been, um, I've been debating whether to talk about this on air. And so I'm not going to put links in the show notes um, because I don't want to encourage traffic, but I also feel like it's something that we need to be aware of. And so uh, I don't know if you guys have seen, and I, I really don't know much about it, but What's been going on with Linux Deepin this week? It's really, it's a disgrace, really. Um, So there was an unsubstantiated YouTube video that goes live that says that Linux Deepin is spyware and that it's spying on you. Um, And then the project, uh, after it gets enough traction, of course, because Reddit is a cesspool of dbags, it gets upvoted. It starts getting a lot of attention. So it becomes on the Deepin project's radar. And they respond with a blog post. And of course, there is a communication barrier here. So there was a couple of things that are misunderstood and they come back and say, well, we're not really spying. What we're doing is we're collecting the number of installs and they're like, they list like the three or four data points that are pretty basic bitch metrics that aren't really going to offend anybody unless you're looking to be offended. And of course, then there's a follow up video that then, um, uh, sort of just makes hay out of their admission that they are collecting some metrics. And I told you, here's proof of the spying. Uh, and then everybody in the Reddit comments, oh, they're saying they're not spying, but then they write a blog post saying exactly how they're spying on us. And it's just outrage after outrage. And um, I think we have a problem here because, I've, and I won't go through the whole thing, but you guys know I, I'm i a big believer that unlike the Windows admin community or the Apple user community or, or these different subsects of technology, the open source community is vulnerable to this sort of insidious infighting in a way that I think is destructive to people's motivation to contribute to open source code. So I think it's worth talking about just really quickly. I won't go on to it because there's episodes dedicated to it if you want to hear this. Uh, but I think we have a particular problem with YouTube. Uh, it is a toxic cesspool of clickbait one-upism. And it's compounded by adpocalypse and constant demonetization that forces people to continue to pivot, to try to flail around and find a new way to get people's attention and prey on their emotions. So that way they can click on a YouTube video and somebody can monetize that click for a penny. At the same time, there is competition inherent in the platform because there's multiple people that are trying to cover these topics. You've noticed that you probably, if you are on YouTube, you've noticed, oh, well, really since we ended last, Jupyter Broadcasting has been significantly pulling back on YouTube. And the rationale has been because I think it's toxic and I think it's damaging to the open source community because of its inherent nature of how the system works. It's designed to encourage clickbait because of the way the YouTube algorithm works. It's designed to encourage people to try to elicit an emotional click. But the other problem is, and this is a secret that Google doesn't really like to tell you, because it's really bad for ads. But anybody who creates content for YouTube for a little while, and um, I've been doing it for about 10 years, I've been posting to YouTube, so I have some standing here. Um, A huge portion of the audience on YouTube is kids. And I'm, I, I'm grateful you guys are watching. I'm, this isn't me saying, Hey, kids suck. It's just saying the reality is a huge portion of the YouTube audience is children. Not all of them are logged in, but it's a huge percentage. And especially on the large YouTubers, like your, your Roman Atwoods, your Casey Neistats, your large channels where they get hundreds of thousands, if not millions of views a ginormous percentage of that that Google does not want you to know about because, again, that doesn't play well to advertisers, is children. When you remove the child metric from YouTube, what's left, the adults, well, you have to realize that now these people that are making videos about Linux and open source are serving to a very small niche of YouTube already, the adults. And then it's a niche within that niche of people who care about Linux and open source and are willing to watch... Production values that tend to vary and people who tend to be varying presenters talk about these topics. That's like a super double, triple niche, right? Now we're way down the stack. And so these people that are creating these videos are really fighting for a small number of audience on YouTube. And I would argue it's a number that is actually too small for them to successfully monetize. So we have this really toxic nature where they're competing against each other because you only have so much time in the day to watch a YouTube video. They're competing against an algorithm that's a total black box and it drives clickbait nature of content creators to put something out there that I just need you to watch because I have to grow my audience because unless I'm getting about 25,000 views per video, I can't really monetize this, especially if I'm living anywhere on either side of the east or west coast of the United States. You got to get around 25,000, 30,000 views per video to make a decent living. as not accounting for adpocalypse. as not accounting for demonetization. So don't say a bad word. It's a very, very difficult landscape. And it pushes people to do things like call a Linux distro spyware simply because it's checking how many people have installed Firefox. And it, it creates this negative momentum and this negative discussion and this confirmation bias that you see then spread throughout com- discussion forums do you think
3: that Deepin was looked at more closely because it originates from China?
0: Yeah, yeah.
3: And do you think that that betrays the content provider's mentality?
0: Yeah, and maybe the people that uh, all got their pitchforks as well, although I could easily see it happening to Ubuntu. Uh, especially if Canonical hadn't been fully out ahead of, hey, you know, in six months we're going to start collecting some basic metrics that we should have been collecting all along. If if Canonical yeah. hadn't messaged that ahead of time, it would have. And you guys, that's why you met, that's why Canonical messaged it, right? Because it would have been a huge controversy.
3: Yes, um, but I, I I just feel that you know that there is a mentality which is because something comes from China, it should should be eyed with suspicion first. Absolutely. I think
0: that's absolutely true.
3: I'm not saying I subscribe to that, by the way. I think that it's actually a a rather dangerous position, a default position to have. Yeah. But I feel that Deepin has been picked out in this way more than once in the past by a similar group of content makers on YouTube. There is a common theme that something that comes from China is like
2: cheap Chinese rubbish. Yet what a lot of people forget is They also buy expensive Chinese stuff, like, you know, their very expensive device that they fondle all day every day was almost certainly made in the Far East. and That's okay, but it's the cheap Chinese rubbish that's terrible and and decrying everything as cheap Chinese crap because they can buy something cheap on Alibaba. But it turns out it's actually cheap to manufacture something over there. That doesn't mean it's all crap, right? And the same goes for software. Just because there's a vast number of developers over there creating software at low cost doesn't make it inherently rubbish yes they might make mistakes so does everyone nobody in any of those threads on reddit is perfect none of them have ever not made a mistake in their life and like never been found out and then everything's okay like everyone makes mistakes right and these people made a mistake there's a communication barrier between our western youtube friends and those guys over in the far east and I think there's a massive misinterpretation of basically what was, in, you know, in essence, um, like Google Analytics, that everyone has turned on unless they've got an ad blocker. And everyone uses, yet it's not okay for them to use it over there because they are them. That's why.
0: Yep. You're pretty much that. <laughs> it does feel, and we, you see it too, it's not just China. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't trust Telegram because it comes from Russia. And uh, that's reason enough to be skeptical of it. But that,
2: but that's that's just as bad, because it doesn't come from Russia. It's not like Russia is one amorphous block. That is how it is seen. Right, exactly. It's one guy mm-hmm. who happens <laughs> to be Russian who made that thing. Russia is a f- effing huge place with a lot of people in it that do lots of different things. One guy <laughs> happens to be Russian yeah. doesn't make all of Telegram bad. There are other things that make Telegram bad, but it's not that.
0: Yeah, I, I think, Poby, you nailed it on the head right there. I I, I couldn't say it better myself. Uh, and so maybe that's part of what gets me going about it is this sort of insidious uh, thing that sort of creeps in. You don't even realize it's what's driving your motivation, um, and it just seems so damaging in in the open source community. I guess part of it comes. I got another email this week from uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if he's a well known developer, but the project is well known, and. Um, he's quitting because of because of just feeling like it, the most common thread in there is uh, this this awful sense of entitlement and this sort of inflexibility in respecting like the fact that i'm a human being uh, and it's just uh, it's really sad to see that i can't agree more
3: with that sentiment you know the the other thing that some of these um youtube videos and and other outlets on reddit is this huge sense of entitlement. You know, I'm just going to dogpile on this thing that you make in your spare time for the love of it. You know, I'm going to criticize it like it's a professional project. I'm going to, I'm going to build my own profile off the back of, you know, shit posting about, Whatever Linux distribution or whatever application it is that you you think you've got superior opinions on. And it is extremely demoralizing for the people that invest huge amounts of time in a positive way to actually try and create something for anyone to use free of charge in in open source and then and then to have it shit on by yeah. you know a bunch of monkeys in Reddit is is really disheartening yeah. uh, and it, it does yep. make you think twice sometimes you know you know I'm sat here this evening whilst we're talking in another window I'm I'm fixing the last of the bugs that are you know blockers for for release next week. And I've been doing that to the early hours of the morning for several weeks now, and I'm pretty tired. And when you see posts like that in the corners of the internet where, where these discussions um, run, it really turns you off, you know, putting the effort in.
0: Yeah. I, I, I find a super irony too. So people that are sort of stuck in this cycle of trying to create crazy content so that way they can build audience so that way they can reach sustainability. It's sort of like pissing in your own well. And there's, they're, they're, they're devastating. They have devastating consequences on people that are working on a passion project that are doing something that fulfills them. And then you, these people come along and they, they, they just devastate them. And the irony is how fulfilling must their work be if they're, if they're creating content like this that is just this shit content, these shit posts, they can't be proud of themselves. They can't, be, they can't be fulfilled by this. And so the very thing that's probably robbing them of fulfillment they use to take away from somebody who has found something that gives them fulfillment. It's sick. It's the smug attitude that
3: you see, you know, in the, in the comments and the, and, and some of the content It's well. You know, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm making a funny now by, by, you know, pointing out this, this thing that I've found. And it's just like, well, if that's the best you've got to contribute to open source, I'd, I'd rather you weren't a part of it and you <laughs> just shut exactly. the fuck up.
0: Yeah. I have found um, that it's not everywhere. And it's not like, uh, I wouldn't wouldn't say most of these things about anyone in the Jupiter Broadcasting audience. I have had so many wonderful interactions. People, you know, I get notes from people that just say, thanks for working as hard as you do. Thanks for doing what you do. You know, and I get a lot of that. I mean, I get haters too, but I get a lot of that. Uh, But there are corners where it's really prevalent. And it seems to be areas where... Uh, there's a lot of incentives around getting as many clicks as possible, whether it's upvotes or, or ad revenue. Wherever those dynamics come to play, it just seems to be really toxic for open source. I don't know. I, I, I think we've made this point enough, uh, but it's something I've been thinking about watching this go down with Deepin. Because, you know, I see this go across my radar, and it's like, how do I treat this? Is this a news story? I don't want to even give this legitimacy. Now, if there was legitimately, like, spying taking place, I absolutely would cover that. But when it's this sort of rough shot, no fact-based opinion stuff. It really breaks the trust that is
5: oftentimes kind of the heart
0: of the open source community. I kind of feel like we do this with stuff from Microsoft, too. Like It came from China, it came from Russia, it came from Microsoft, so therefore we're automatically skeptical. And it was in full force this week when Microsoft announced Azure Sphere, which is a multi-part component, um, but the most headline grabbing component is the fact that there's an os involved that uses the linux kernel and i have seen everything from this is this is now everybody actually the most common thing i have seen is this is microsoft embracing and extinguishing linux they've begun the extinguish phase and everybody's jumping to 11 on this one so we decided let's let's actually talk to the people behind the project and figure out what's going on. And so we discussed with uh, a couple of folks from Microsoft they are involved in the of building the product. Uh, what it is, what's going on, what kind of Linux, what are they using it for, what's the hardware, all of that stuff. And uh, so we'll share you we'll share with what we you with what we picked up. Or does that make sense? We'll share what we learned. We got the deets. We got the deets. But first, let's mention Linux Academy. It's LinuxAcademy.com/unplugged. You go there to sign up for a free seven day trial and support the show. It's a platform to learn more about Linux. And once you sign up, you get unlimited access. And they're about to add a whole bunch of new stuff in the month of April, 70 new courses, challenges, learning activities. It's actually breaks down like this, 20 new courses, as well as some content refreshes, 50 new cloud assessments, hands-on learning activities, and new challenges baked in, as well as taking advantage of their new real-time grader platform so you can get feedback as you're learning. ooh Isn't that great? That is. Yeah, so go to linuxacademy.com unplugged, sign up for the free seven-day trial. You support the show, and then check it out. They got hands-on, scenario-based labs. They spin up servers on demand. You pick the distro and adjust the courseware and the servers. They have full-time human beings that can help you if you ever get stuck. If you're busy, they got a course schedule. It'll work with your busy schedules. And they got Learning paths, which are a series of content and courseware planned by instructors for specific career tracks. Now you combine that with all the new content they're rolling out in the month of April. It's never been a better time to sign up. Linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. You can also try out the iOS and Android app, the flashcards, which are forked by the community, and the tiny bits of wisdom that they call nuggets that go deep dives into single topics like you want to learn file permissions on Linux, you want to learn firewalling, you, you want to learn basic networking and ports on Linux. They have deep dives into those specific topics, other topics too, including some development ones at Linux Academy as well. I love me some nuggets. <laughs> And Mexi Fries, as we had a little Mexi Fries with us too. Linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Go there, sign up for a free seven day trial, and try out the full featured training library with everything you need to learn new skills and advance your career. Linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Big thanks to Lynx Academy for sponsoring the Unplugged program. So uh, help me uh, not mistake the pronunciation of the primary gentleman that we spoke with. Was it Galen? Galen Hunt. Yeah, it was Galen Hunt. Uh, and uh, Galen is the author of uh, a whole line of publications of papers that came out of Microsoft that if you read them would almost kind of give you a clue of where they were going with all of this. Like the, 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 the hint was out there. Uh, like the the one that was published last year, the seven properties of highly secure devices or challenges to building scalable services. And the, the background is you could see that there's been a lot of thought that went into this. So Wes and I wanted to be able to talk on some level of authority. Uh, of what Azure Sphere is and how Linux is being used by Microsoft. And so Azure Sphere, think of it as something that really has three aspects. Overall, it's a solution for companies that are building single-chip computer products, devices that are often even smaller than a Raspberry Pi. You know, truly like the toasters and the hair dryers that haven't yet been connected to Wi-Fi, but are just about to be. Right,
5: things that are running like just little microcontrollers now, maybe real-time operating systems, not
0: big, full-featured things. Yeah, we were joking, but actually, very realistically, things like those Bluetooth sous-vides and whatnot oh, exactly. that, it's, it's really happening. Uh, and Microsoft estimates that there's probably 10 billion units around the world like this. I think that might have been a yearly number too that gets sold. Uh, Lower-end devices that you know you just don't traditionally think of, but they would sometimes have like a real-time operating system on there. Azure Sphere is stepping in here. They're sort of making a product for these manufacturers, a full end-to-end product to run on these devices. So it's it's three aspects, and this is where it starts to make sense. You probably heard of the new MCUs, these these uh, machines that are a system all on this one slab. It's it's part of a hardware solution that vendors will be able to use. It'll also be available as a dev kit later on, and they've built in some of the similar hardware checks that they have in the Xbox. They took that like hardware root of trust. Each device has its own secured identity. It uses secure boot capabilities. It verifies that the device software installed is legitimate. And it's also possible to check in with the server and have server-side and client-side checks as well. Microsoft's going to be licensing that silicon. Uh, And I I didn't quite get the license out of them, but it sounds like it's going to be pretty liberal. And royalty-free. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And uh, the second bit is... So so this Azure Sphere is three parts. That's part one, the hardware part. The second bit is the OS... This is where Linux sits. It's a multi-layered OS. And the reason why they call it that is there's a lower level that's doing the hardware and software verification. The second layer is the Linux kernel. And we pushed them for some details on this and they shared it with us. It's using Linux kernel 4.9 and Wes asked them specifically, uh, are you going to be tracking upstream kernel releases? Is it based on another project? Is this a derivative distro? It is upstream Linux kernel 4.9 and they said they're going to be aggressively aggressively. Tracking. That was their term, yeah, aggressively tracking upstream with that. Um, and so I asked, so what are you using Linux for specifically? And they they kind of they kind of shy away from this a bit because to them, it's just part of like a three-part solution. I know that sounds so corporate, but that's really how they see it. Linux is sort of just like this enabling technology stack. It's not like this huge come to Jesus over the GPL. It's just, practical. Yeah, it wasn't designed around Linux. Linux isn't a focus. Linux was just a tool that fit into the architecture. So we said, so how are you using Linux? And so they're using process isolation via the Linux kernel, and they're using sandboxes for all the apps, and they're using the kernel features built into 4.9 for sandboxing. And of course, they're using the networking stack and the disk IO stack. So they're, they're using the base elements. And I said, okay, well, honestly here, I- is, is this something that you guys just slammed in because you realized you couldn't get Windows down on these real-time devices, or was Linux baked in from the very beginning when you started this project? Uh, and the answer was, we started this project four years ago, and Linux was, from day one, part of the solution. From day one, they were going to use Linux. Uh, and then, so that's, so that's the second middle layer of Azure Sphere. And then there's the third part to Azure Sphere. Uh, And that is the part that actually is on Azure, really. It's the Azure Sphere Security Service. It's a cloud service that can reach out to every device that has a security Azure Sphere chip in it that's part of the MCU. Uh, It uses certificate-based authentication for authentication to the cloud, and it allows for device-to-device communication directly using these certificates. And it also includes uh, the ability to collect crash metrics of applications which Microsoft is planning to aggregate across the entire Azure Sphere ecosystem so that way they can, at large scale, see if all of a sudden a lot of devices are getting this port banged on or this application is crashing on a lot of systems. But on top of that, they can give those metrics back anonymized to the hardware manufacturers and they can see how their devices are failing. And then the last part of the hosted part of Azure Sphere is a software update channel that Microsoft will host and manage for them, but the vendor will have a secure channel to ship software updates, and Microsoft will run support for 10 years. They will support these Linux-based IoT devices and give vendors a channel to ship updates and give them metrics for 10 years. They have an SDK coming soonish, probably like summertime. It's going to include a dev kit board, hooks up via USB, and then you can start banging on it. Even Visual Studio integration. Yeah, sounds like a pretty decent uh, development environment. The core problem they're really solving is hardware manufacturers that, say, want to make a a sous vide, a Bluetooth sous vide, or a Wi-Fi sous vide machine, or a Crock-Pot... Uh, They don't have to now build a whole server infrastructure to manage uh, incoming requests, set up a REST API, set up push services, build out through data centers all around the world so that way they can have low latency connections, and then have an on-staff software team that ships out updates and looks and analyzes logs and ships out fixes. Um, Microsoft is now doing all of that. They're figuring out the device communication security, they're figuring out how to push out the software updates, and they're even using a Linux kernel for the actual low-end hardware devices. It is truly like a, you want to make an IoT device product, uh, GE? Well, here's Azure Sphere, we'll take care of the silicon, we'll take care of the software updates, we'll take care of the metrics, and we'll take care of 10 years of support channel for you. You just have to figure out the product, and figure out what you want to do with it, and we'll handle the back-end stuff. Seems like that's going to be a big, big thing. And you tie it in with Azure, which is all over the world. You know, Microsoft will probably price it extremely aggressively to get people to try it. Right, yeah, I'm sure. And then, you know, then it's oh so easy. Oh, we'll just keep, you'll host other things in Azure as well, of course. Yeah, Uh, and fascinating that uh, from day one, four years ago, Linux,
5: I thought what was, another part that was interesting was that, you know, a large part of that was that their, their vendors, their silicon partners, you know, they, are, they already knew Linux and Linux was open source. It was easier for them to experiment, to take Microsoft's code and iterate on it, make improvements, ship them back, share them, uh, kind of speaks to the things we like about Linux.
0: I don't know if they would ca- characterize it this way, but my personal takeaway from our call was they were surprised how much attention the Linux, Linux aspect has gotten. They didn't see that coming because, and and kind of paraphrasing, they're like, well, we've been shipping Linux on switches in Azure, uh, and Linux is a massively growing aspect for that end of our business. So when it comes to Azure, Linux has been part of their business for a long time, and it's totally normal to them. They're not even surprised by it. So they weren't quite expecting the amount of reaction it got because their mindset has been, well, yeah, of course we're using Linux. Which was weird for us to kind of get up to speed on, because because right. like, they were like, I don't know why everybody's so surprised <laughs> by this, and we're like, really, guys, you're shipping a Linux-based OS now? Like, yeah, well, yeah, well, this is the Azure team. This is what we do. Like, okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. And from that perspective, it does make sense, and yeah, like you know, it, it it fits. It was the right tool at the right time in the right place, and good on yeah. them. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, and they they talk about so you'll hear in the announcements, you'll hear. Um, Microsoft has put certain Windows security technologies into their version of Linux. You may have read some version of that in the press releases. And we said, what is that? What are these Windows security techniques that you're now applying to Linux? And um, predominantly, it was around the crash reporting, the Windows crash reporter, tying that into their existing infrastructure for that, um, but also came down to the way they designed some of the permissions. You remember, there was like a third thing that they took from Windows. It didn't seem like a huge deal, but I didn't note it down. But the Crash Metrics collection, oh, oh, the way they're slipstreaming the updates in to be low bandwidth, so that way they can slip updates in. They're using that same uh, system they use for Windows 10 to do that, it sounded like. Yes, right. That's, that's it. what it was. Um, so anyways, kind of a compelling offer. I didn't ask them this, but when I first heard the announcement, I was a little surprised it wasn't based on an existing distro, like a, like your Ubuntu core or something to that degree. Uh, I was a little surprised that they decided to roll their own. But when you hear about the other stuff, they've wrapped around it. I, I think I, I can understand why.
5: Yeah, and it may be you know, that these devices are special purpose enough that you don't need a full-featured, regular sort of yeah. user
0: land, and you're tightly... Yeah, the kernel really sounds like an enabling piece of technology. Yeah. It's not like the core aspect of these devices. Uh, it's just a sub-aspect of, a th- of three parts of a component, really. Uh, but a, a big turn of events for Microsoft, either way, from where I said it seems like a big deal to me, um, and uh, they went out of their way to make sure it was clear to us, um, including uh, setting up a conference call. I think they said they were at a, a conference, an RSA yeah, the, the, call? Or the, yeah, they're at the RSA conference right yeah, now. Which, so they, they, they grabbed a room and they got a group of people from the Azure team in a room and got on a phone call with us. Well, that's why we didn't do an interview, but they got on a phone call with us and let us just bang questions at them for a half hour. About this thing, and uh, I was—I walked away feeling pretty impressed. I, I, I went in not really understanding what's going on, wondering is this embrace and extinguish, uh, but I walked out of it uh, with uh, well those takeaways that I just shared with you. Yeah, I
5: mean, it really—I mean, it
0: really seems like they—they they are motivated.
5: They see the business case for all the terrible IoT things that already exist in the world and why that needs to be fixed. Yeah, whether or not it's going to be adopted, I—I I don't know, but.
0: It might be a good thing if it is. I wouldn't be too surprised if Microsoft doesn't have success working directly with like fridge manufacturers. And, you know, they they can do that big business to big business. uh, And they're already in on so many different devices. And some of these devices have tried to ship versions of Windows embedded. And now they can just shift those hardware partners over to this possibly. I don't know. Anyways, I was really thankful, and I uh, extended them an offer to come on the show down the road if we have more questions. So if you have some questions or uh, comments, leave it either where you're watching or linuxunplugged.com slash contact. Is there anything from the mumble room, that, any questions or thoughts about Microsoft shipping a Linux distro? That's kind of a big development in itself. I mean, I guess it's not fair to call it a distro, but a Linux-powered product, I guess we could say.
4: I think Linus Torvald says he won.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that famous quote, when Microsoft starts making applications for Linux, I've won. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there was a real like uh just practicalness in their mind. Uh, they just thought, you know, for these R O T devices, these really kind of lower end real time operating system devices, Linux was just a better fit. And then you have to wonder, would they have done this if the last few years of work on uh, containers and sandboxing hadn't been going to the Linux kernel? Because those are the, some of the core features they're using to secure the applications that run on these devices. Right, you need I mean, you need
5: a certain amount of those primitives available so that you can build if you're trying to build a secure
0: OS, you need to be able to achieve that goal. Yeah, and if those weren't there, this they wouldn't have had that goal. Minimak, you have a point about sort of the future.
5: Yeah, see, with all these changes, they did the last thing, meaning restructuring the whole company it looks like they want to be a service provider in the future so selling software is not that important selling services that makes money
0: you know we've been talking on the coder radio program coder.show about microsoft sort of becoming the new ibm and it started about three weeks ago we, or four weeks ago, when we did a retrospective look at Sun Microsystems and their influence on the IT industry, their influence on Android and Java. And that retrospective then got us talking about IBM, which we did last week. And at the end of our retrospective of IBM, sort of at its heyday in the 80s, we realized that Microsoft is very much getting to a, to a new version. Uh, my co-host Michael calls it a platonic ideal of what IBM is. Wanted to be is what Microsoft is becoming. I don't know. I'm, I'm watching this, all of these events and, um, you go into it with, you can, I, at least I can't help because I came up during the good old wars of Microsoft and windows and Linux. I mean, that's just, that was the fire I was that, raised yeah, in. you were raised. Yeah, exactly. So when I, when I see these stories, you know, that, Oh man, this is Embrace and extinguish does go across my mind. And I have to like, I have to really sort of just take a moment and be self aware and go, okay, well, that's it's an, an emotional reaction. reaction. Yeah, right. Yeah. You just- that's an emotional reaction. Um, be mindful. And what could this really be? And, and I think what's deeper is what we are witnessing is that Microsoft is going to become one of the handful of companies that has successfully, and I mean very successfully, monetized Linux and open source. And uh, we have a hard time with that in the open source Linux community. We don't like people making money. You know, we have a few handful of blessed companies like Red Hat that will even celebrate when they make money. They're allowed to make money. But uh, otherwise, you're not really allowed to make money in Linux. Um, And so when Microsoft is becoming one of the clear leaders of people making a profit off of Linux and open source, I think it doesn't sit well with us. I think below all of this is, what if one of the companies at the end of this war, everything we fought for, at the end of all of it, when all is said and done, the company that's making the most money off of Linux or making some of the most money is Microsoft. I think that's what's really bothering people. Is they they shouldn't be they shouldn't be allowed. They fought us the whole way. They shouldn't be allowed to have this. This is ours. But they're a smart company with a lot of smart people, and they made some smart changes. And now they're going to be one of the number one money makers off Linux. You see, they don't have to destroy Linux. They don't have to take over Linux. They don't have to uh, convince the Linux Foundation to slow down development or any conspiracy theory that people cook and bake and come up with because they can make money off Linux just the way it is. And they're making more money than ever. And the GPL will keep Linux Linux. That's done. The GPL is done. GPL2, unless they convince Linus to relicense, I think we're pretty much safe here. And so what we really got to wrap our heads around is that Microsoft is going to be one of the biggest money makers off of Linux. And we got to think about how that makes us feel. And maybe if that's what's influencing our reaction to some of this. Are they better at Linux than not we be, are? Yeah, I mean, that's just it, right? That's the, not to be <laughs> Mr. Linux podcast uh, psychologist here, but I think that's at play a little bit. Because it's, it's, it's unsettling. You're not allowed to make money off of Linux. You fought us on this. You called it a cancer. Uh, but we all know that uh, things times and things change. And this uh, Azure Sphere, shipping Linux at the core of it, may be just the tip of the iceberg. Think about that for a second. If .NET Core, Visual Studio Code, all of those things have been brewing in the background for years, four years, and then PowerShell Core comes out, another four years, and now we've heard of this, Azure Sphere, using a Linux kernel, about 4 years in development. Something big happened at Microsoft. Well, we know what happened, but 4 or 5 years ago that all that stories, all those stories about Satya taking over, we heard about the top echelon of management getting reorged. But just like how it always goes, the actual worker bees down below, people that got moved, fired, shuffled around, we didn't hear about them. But that's where some of this work started. Down in the bowels of Microsoft where lots of reorgs happened that didn't make the headlines. And that's the hard part we're having a hard time wrapping our heads around when it comes to how Microsoft is behaving now, is because we've seen Saatchi, we've seen the top layers, because those are people on their websites. And when they make changes, they got to update the website, they make a press announcement. But when you're 10 managers down the chain, and you're working on some prototype product, and you know, that doesn't make headlines. So it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a different Microsoft too. So it's a Microsoft that's learned how to make money off Linux and open source, and it's a different internal beast that we haven't really learned yet. We have so many decades of experience with the old configuration, but now we're dealing with Microsoft in a totally different configuration. They're not as static of an entity as we want to think that they are, right? I, mean, and- I, f- I feel like a, a, an old version of Microsoft would have figured out a way to cram NT on this or would have cr- crammed some BSD that they didn't even have to name on there. You know, there just would have been a hard line. It's clear something deep down changed. Right, yeah, clearly
5: the leadership doesn't doesn't object. There's not yeah. this entrenched resistance, no. at least it
0: no, doesn't seem to be. And it doesn't feel like it's the light of Stallman either. It's just simply... <laughs> it's just it, practical. It's some, you got to wonder if they're sitting around the boardroom going, I wonder if we could make more money at this Linux stuff than Red Hat. <laughs> yeah, I right. think we could make more money than Red Hat. Let's give it a go. You know, that's what's going on. It's good old capitalism. And then we're sitting back going, what the hell? A Linux kernel. Embrace and extinguish. Embrace and extinguish. But it's maybe now reactionary. We'll be seeing,
5: you know, uh, security-related patches blown from Microsoft upstream. Who knows? Yeah.
0: Weird. Weird. Yeah, especially if they start shipping a lot of these things. Going to be a lot of Linux kernels out there, and how are they going to do ten years of support? That's a huge commitment. I guess that's just something else I'd like to follow up with them. Is are they going to run their own internal forks because
1: you, you,
0: you're going to have to do your own LTS, or so, are they just going to be updated a lot? You know, is this going to be like a continuous oh, deployment style? Yeah, so they'll be on five zero in a few weeks. <laughs> Maybe not that current. I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait and see. We also don't know like quite what the licensing is going to be around the silicon yet. Uh, We don't know like what the, because they're going to also release the specs. We don't really have a clear picture. They said royalty free, but we don't really have a clear picture. Um, And all that, like, will you be able to even design applications for it from Linux? We don't know. We don't know. All that still, all that is still to be determined. Uh, But uh, uh, it was something. It was really something to see that. Co- I did not expect that story this week. Did not see that coming. All right, guys. Well, is there anything else we need to cover before we get out of here this week? Mention the Ubuntu podcast. We, we got to do that. Ubuntu we podcast. Sure do. Go get more Popey and Wimpy over there. Good show. And uh, yeah, okay. Oh, go get more West Payne, TechSnap.Systems. How about that? Bam. should plug our own stuff too. I like it when we do that. Okay, everybody. Well, we'll get out of here. Thank you for joining us. If you want to join us on a Tuesday, you're more than welcome. We do this show live over at JBLive.TV. Usually, the live stream kicks off around 1.30 p.m. Pacific. You can get it converted to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Then you hang out, you join us, and then uh, kick back and enjoy the Ask Noah show, which comes just right after this show. Bonus show. And then go get more. Just go get more. Just more always JV. more. Always. There's more shows. LinuxUnplug.com. There's more there. jupiterbroadcasting.com. There's more there. There's always tech more. Tech Talk Today. Yeah, Tech Talk Talk Today. All right. Thanks for being here. We'll see you right back here. Next. To. Who. 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 Who's. done You know, ironically, I think most people catch the show like on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So I really shouldn't say see you next Tuesday. Just see you next week. See you next week. What do we call this thing, guys? We covered a lot of things. Thank you, everybody, for contributing. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed the heck out of the show. Extend and extinguish.
5: Boom, done, title chosen. Extend
0: and extinguish, huh? That's not bad. Uh, that is not bad. Uh, mm, I'm sure. I'm sure uh, that would get a, that would get a few clicks. I'm going to submit it. <laughs> JBtitles.com. Go boat. Can uh, Can you give me a bit of
3: YouTube consultancy, Chris? Sure. Um, can you create multiple channels under a single like Google? Yes. Account. How the yes
0: f- I have it. <laughs> How the heck do you do it? What I have done um, is I have different Google accounts, and then I have them all logged in. And, you know, you can use a little switcher that works better from for me, because then you can just go in and add them as managers to the individual YouTube channels. But uh, yes, that's how I do it. So I have like a Jupiter, I have Chris at Jupiter Broadcasting, I have my personal one, and then we have a couple of like behind the scenes channels. Those are all different Gmail logins, um, and then I've logged into the browser and I just switch up in the little YouTube thingy. Okay, but I don't want another yeah. Google account. So what's, the, so what's your trick, Bobby?
3: I'm trying to figure it out because I did it a long time ago. <laughs> and I, I can
2: see them both there
0: yeah, in, th- in the Creator Studio. I think there I used think to be a way else. to do it through Google+, and I don't think you can – I don't know. There's some functionality that they used to do through Google+, Plus. they've removed now. and just They haven't replaced it, but I can't remember what it was. Azure goes Linux. That, that happened a long time ago, though. Azure as a service, how much Linux is in that Windows – the Bonds of Azure. It came from Redmond. <laughs> uh, what did I What did, What did? I submit on your behalf? I forgot. You had something. Oh, yeah. Embrace and Extinguish. Maybe one called Lindos. <laughs> mm, the end of Embrace and Extinguish? Maybe. There was a new snap that I saw recently that I was surprised could actually be a snap. And I thought it was something more like at the system level. But now I can't remember what it was. You guys, is that am I ringing any bells? I know it's pretty vague, but there was some new snap I saw go across the news headlines, and it was like, "That's possible."
2: Notepad plus plus, the Windows version of Notepad plus <laughs> plus. No, I'm not even kidding. That you maniac, the, the fastest thing Snap
0: right now. Really? I'll give that a go, yeah. actually. <laughs>
3: yeah. Snap install Notepad hyphen. The word plus, hyphen, the word plus. <laughs> it's pretty interesting that you can,
2: like, and I know, you know, the first thing everyone's going to shout at me is the Flatback guys did this with with, uh, with um, games and chucked them on the Pirate Bay, bundled wine and a game, you know, dodgy pirated copies of games. Okay, yes, I know they've done it before, but this is like the first time we've had a legitimate application bundled with wine in the snap store because it's an open source application. It's not some proprietary. It's not like someone took Photoshop and bundled it with wine and shoved it in the store. This is a GPL application that's been bundled with wine and put in the store. And it's a weird one, but it turns out it's a popular application. And so people install it. And I it, and it, it got me curious as to what Windows applications that you miss from Windows that are not proprietary, which is a tricky one, um, Would you would you want available as a snap?
0: I can only think of commercial ones, you know, because I don't, that's, my that's the only thing I use windows for. If I want to use free software, I just use Linux. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the lunatic in me thinks we should bundle wine and steam inside of snap just for the lols. Yeah, so totally. To windows mm-hmm. games.
0: Yeah. Let me change topics here for a second. Um, cause I want to pick your guys's brain. I have a little birdie telling me that an XPS 13 review unit may land on my doorstep in the next couple of weeks, uh, was oh, that thin we fin- one now with the USB-C USB port. Yeah, it's probably your used one, Poppy. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah,
3: I, I was I was very good with it. I uh, I polished it and wrapped it all up just like it was new.
0: Actually, it may be like, is there any identifying marks on there I should look for? Did it was it a high DPI or a, or a standard? I can't remember. I think you got Have the standard. Have you not listened to our amazing <laughs> review? I did, but I Whoa. and I seem to recall you got the standard DPI screen, but I don't remember for yep. some reason. We
3: okay. got we we got the best model in my opinion. So we got the one with the 1080p screen yeah, uh, but with the 16 gig uh memory uplift yeah uh, and i yes. my personal opinion is on the xps 13 that 13.3 inch display 1080p super crisp and then you get the benefit of the enhanced battery endurance using that 1080p yeah. display rather than a, a UHD
0: display. I think I should ask for that. This is a thin one with only USB C ports. No, I think it has regular ports still. It just has USB-C in addition. They're not monsters. Well, I mean, there are more USB-C ports and it's very, very thin. It is, those things, that's true. Those are true statements about it. But I'm looking forward to it. I'm just kind of figuring, like, what should? I, wait, what's a new take on a laptop review? You know, that's what I'm trying to think of. So if you guys have any ideas, let me know on a new take. Uh, I'll probably, you know, try all the different smattering of distros and different functions, but... Uh, take it to the beach. Take it, take it to the beach? Yeah. Take it to the beach... <laughs> Work a day at the beach. Yeah. Definitely trackpad. Yeah, definitely trackpad. Yeah. I'm just curious. It's we have time to think about it. I think it'll be a few weeks, but if people have ideas, I'd love to know.